Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Awesome. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Like I said earlier, my name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, uh, glad that you're here. So glad to have so many of you with us this morning. Um, Just to catch you up, maybe if you weren't here last week or if this is your first time uh, with us, once again, welcome. But but just so that you know kind of where uh, you're joining in with us. Uh, To bring you up to speed, we kicked off a series last week called Formation, uh, which I always have to clarify every year that we do this series is not actually a series based on the Beyonce song. That would be fun. I'm sure there are churches that have done that, Uh, but this one actually isn't about the Beyonce song. No offense to the queen herself, but um, this is actually about something different. Um, It's about the idea of spiritual formation, uh, which we mentioned last week is, is really just a fancy way of talking about the art and science of how we change to become more like Jesus over time. That's all we're talking about in this series. This is a series, at least in part, about how we change as human beings. And so last week, we spent the bulk of our time together here on Sunday talking about how one of the primary ways that we change is actually through our habits, through the things in our lives that we do over and over again. Our habits have a tremendous amount of say in the types of people that we eventually become and whether or not we become more like Jesus. So in light of all of that, in light of that being the way that it works, each year as a church, we spend a month or two, usually, at the beginning of the calendar year, working through one particular habit or practice in the way of Jesus. One particular habit that if we put into practice in our lives, can help us become more like Jesus over time. So things that we implement regularly for the purpose of helping us grow. And this year, the practice that we are highlighting, that we're participating in together as a church family, is the practice of mission. Demonstrating and articulating the gospel to people who have not yet heard it or do not yet understand it. That's what we're participating in together this year. For the next six weeks, we'll be talking about what it looks like to embody that particular practice. So this morning, I wanted to kick things off in one of the more popular passages in the entire Bible about mission, which is Romans chapter 10. You just heard Anna read it. We're going to look through it one more time. I want us to look at this passage to discover, I think, first what mission actually is and, and why it's important and why it matters. But also, I want us to use this passage and I want us to launch out of this passage to talk a little bit about some of the hesitations that some of us may have around the idea of mission and sharing our faith. I think that's really important for us to talk about too, so that we can learn how to implement this particular practice into our lives. So I'd love to pray for us, and then we'll hop into our passage. Father, thank you for who you are. 
God, thank you that you are living and active and that you speak to us and live in relationship with us by your spirit. And God, we, we thank you as well that when we read the scriptures, when we open up this book, that you speak by your spirit through these words into our lives. God, this is a very old book. It, it's been around for a while, but it is not just that. It is the very words of God. And so God, I pray that as we open up this book and as we dig through the things that it says and the things that it announces to us that we would see who you are more clearly and in light of that we would be led into what you have for us with even more conviction and with even more excitement than before. God, that's what we ask and so we ask your spirit to come and speak and be with us. May it be so. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 10. Here's what it says. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and this is a quote from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So these verses are all about the importance of mission. It starts off by talking about the importance of people believing in Jesus. It even talks a little bit about how the mechanics of that happening actually work. It says it's with a person's heart that they believe, and it's with their mouth that they profess that belief out loud. And then it enters into the section about how Jesus is Lord of all types of people, Jew and Gentile. It says that's Paul's way of saying everybody, everywhere is who this message applies to. God richly blesses all who call on him. But then in the final two verses, it asks a, very, a few very important rhetorical questions. First, it says, how can people call on someone they haven't believed in? And how can people believe in someone that they haven't heard about? And this is where it gets really important and practical for our series, I believe. It says, how can people hear about Jesus without someone preaching the message of Jesus to them? Now, real quickly on that word preach, I don't want you to get too hung up on that word. When the biblical authors use the word preach, they don't necessarily mean what I'm doing right now. They, they don't necessarily mean stand up in front of a crowd and talk loudly in a monologue. It can mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. It can also just mean to tell another person something in an interpersonal setting. So if you go up to your friend and you tell them, for instance, that they have something stuck in their teeth, like any true friend would do in that scenario, that counts as preaching, at least by the biblical definition. It's not preaching about Jesus, but it is preaching. You're telling someone something that has happened. 
You're telling someone something that is true. If you're doing that, you are, by the Bible's definition, preaching to them. So tone of voice and volume of voice and setting is really irrelevant. All of that is irrelevant to a certain extent. Preaching is just informing someone of something that they aren't yet aware of. Does that make sense? That's what the Bible means by that word. So Paul simply says, how can someone hear about Jesus unless someone announces it, unless someone preaches that message to them? And then he says, how can that happen unless someone is sent in order to do just that? That word sent in the Greek is the word apostello. It's where we get the English word apostle. And it means most literally just to be sent on a defined mission by someone else. That's what it means. Paul here is talking about our mission, you and I as followers of Jesus, to go into our various spheres of life and influence, our varying friend groups and workplaces and families and extended families, and even sometimes us going to other places in the world that we've never been, and to go into all of those places and speak to those people, announce to those people the good news of Jesus. In other words, Preaching isn't just something that I do up here on stage. It's something that all followers of Jesus do everywhere that they go. Just as a side note, uh, this is actually why we call what happens up here on stage teaching and not preaching. You ever heard that and thought that was weird, that this is why? It's not that this isn't preaching. Certainly sometimes it is. It's just that we want to reserve the word preaching to mean what it means in the Bible which is something that all of us do. We go into our various spheres of influence, our various friend groups, and we announce to people the good news about Jesus. According to the Bible, that is preaching. More on the mechanics of all of that in the coming weeks. For now, all I want you to see is that what we're reading here in Romans chapter 10 is a clear call from Paul for all of us to declare who Jesus is to the world around us. That's what he's trying to get us to participate in. There is a urgency in what he's saying. There's significant motivation in what he's saying. Go wherever you go and proclaim the good news about Jesus. For generations and generations of followers of Jesus down throughout history, passages like this one in Romans chapter 10 have been seen as a rallying cry as marching orders to go and participate in God's mission wherever they go. But here's the thing. I think what previous generations of followers of Jesus heard as a rallying cry, some of us today may hear a little bit differently. When we think of imperatives, like what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10, I, I think many of us might feel a great deal of reluctance towards it. I think specifically some of my generation, so I'm 34 years old, I, th I think specifically my generation and younger sometimes hear instructions like go and preach the gospel or go and share your faith, and we honestly feel a good bit of anxiety about it. We feel a good bit of angst towards it, really. I think when we think about going and sharing our faith, I mean, our palms get a little bit sweaty. We start breathing heavily. I think for some of us, we have a quite physical reaction to it. 
I mean, hopefully we can be honest about at least this. When, when you heard me say last Sunday, if you listened to the podcast or you were here, and you heard me say that for the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about mission and sharing our faith, like, I, I don't think it's out of place to say that probably some of us heard that and went, oh, that. Really? That? We're going to talk about that for a month and a half? It just doesn't feel like that compelling of an idea, at least to a lot of us. There is this deep residing angst in some of us towards the idea of sharing our faith with other people. And I think there could be any number of different reasons for that angst, for that anxiety that we feel. For some of us, I think we've probably had some really negative personal experiences around sharing our faith. Uh, Friends of mine have told me stories of when they were in middle school and high school of going to the local shopping mall with their youth group, which I think is a sentence that only makes sense in the 1990s, but going to the shopping mall with their entire youth group and their job was to stay in that shopping mall for four hours and to see how many people they could strike up random conversations with about Jesus as they walked through the mall. Now, Just try to remember for a second how awkward you were when you were in middle school and high school. Now add forced conversations with strangers to that awkwardness. Do you feel uncomfortable yet? I think you're starting to feel what a lot of those people innocently walking through the mall felt on that day when they were invited into this conversation. But maybe you've had an experience like that or or something equally as uncomfortable as that. I also remember uh, from when I was in youth group, uh, all sorts of clever mechanisms that we were taught for how to share the gospel with our friends. So there were uh, WWJD bracelets. Anybody remember those? Yeah, so WWJD stands for what would Jesus do? Somebody told me that WWJD bracelets are like making a comeback, which I don't know how I feel about that. But I was like there for their debut, right? When they first arrived on the scene, And at least the idea behind the bracelets, as I understood it, at least, was that you would wear these bracelets anywhere that you went, and and people would see the letters on your bracelet, and they would go, hey, what does that stand for? And then you would surprise them with a gospel presentation, right? (laughs) I think that was the goal. And so there were all these, like, clever tips and tricks for sharing the gospel with people. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of an awkward evangelical moment, Right? Maybe for you, you've like experienced the door-to-door evangelist who show up on your front door and open with a question like, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Which is a really interesting way to introduce yourself to someone, right? Hello, my name is Kent, and now suddenly and without warning, you're death. Let's talk about death. It's kind of an odd method. And so I, I think some of us, because of experiences like that, or just being aware that that exists out in the world, I think some of us have a great deal of hesitancy towards sharing our faith with others because we don't want to come across like that or we don't want people to associate us with people like that. Whether it's door-to-door evangelists, street preachers, mall evangelists and youth group or the like, we don't want to come across that way. And we could go on with examples, but we won't. For some of you, I'm sure I'm bringing up childhood memories that you've worked really hard to forget at this point. 
But let me just say, uh, real quickly, before we get too self-righteous towards any of that, let's at least give credit where credit is due. At least previous generations were doing something. Right? I mean, I, I know people who came to know Jesus because of one of those types of methods. At least people that went before us and followers of Jesus that went before us, at least they had the burden, often guided by passages like Romans chapter 10, to share the gospel with the world around them, even if it meant being a little bit socially awkward in the process. So we can critique their methods if we want to, but let's not critique their motivation. Their motivation was actually beautiful. It was to announce the good news of Jesus to a world that desperately needed to hear it. But still, I think those experiences are part of why many of us are hesitant. We've had bad experiences with other things called mission or called evangelism, and we don't want to become that, or we don't want to be associated with things like that. But I want us to think about that for a second together this morning, because I think there might be more to our hesitancy than just what I've mentioned so far. I, I think there might be more behind it than just bad experiences and bad methodologies, because I don't know that those things make us as hesitant in other arenas of our life. For example, do we stop sharing our aggressive opinions about our favorite Netflix show just because we had a negative experience doing it? I don't know of anybody that does that. If anything, you go, well, how about this other show? And then you talk about another one, right? I don't know that we have the same hesitancy there. Do we stop sharing our opinions about our favorite sports teams because somebody did that around us and we thought it came across as pushy? No, sometimes that makes us even more likely to share our own opposing opinion about another sports team. Uh, many of you guys know me personally. You know that I have never once backed down from sharing my opinions on good and bad restaurants in Knoxville just because it didn't go well or because the other person didn't agree with me. I'll double down on that in a second. But yet, I think a lot of us, if we have a few negative experiences in talking to someone about Jesus, it tends to affect us on a much deeper level. Right, it creates this anxiety in us. So I think it's worth asking, what's the, what's the difference there? What is it that makes us respond differently when it comes to negative experiences sharing our faith? I think for starters, it is that all of those other opinions I just mentioned, so TV shows, sports, food, restaurants, all of that, all of those opinions are just that, they're opinions. Not facts, opinions. They're subjective preferences, not statements about how the world actually is or should be. That makes them different from sharing our faith because the gospel is not an opinion. It's a fact. It's not subjective. It's objective. It's a statement about how things actually are in the world, and that makes it a little more sensitive of a topic for a lot of us. It's a fact, it's true, and if it is true, by necessity, it implies that other things are not true. It's an exclusive truth to some degree, and it makes claims of ultimate authority and ultimate allegiance and ultimate morality, and those are not 
And, and there are not many things that our modern society has more of a t- distaste for than statements about ultimate allegiance and ultimate authority and ultimate morality. You see, most of us here in America have been discipled well in a little something called relativism. A relativistic society, just in case you're unfamiliar with the term, is where each person or each group of people gets to define their own truth. So their own ethics, their own values, and really, to a certain degree, their own reality. But it's also a world where none of those truths or ethics or values or realities are inherently more true or more valid than anybody else's. We live in a very relativistic society. Now, the motivation behind relativism is good. The idea is if we just kind of let everybody decide their own reality for themselves, then everybody will live in a lot more peace than they would otherwise, right? So, so it's a good motive. The problem is that I don't know that it works that way. For, for example, right now, when you just look across the, the societal landscape in America, does it feel like we're really at peace with each other? But relativism is what got us there. So I don't know that relativism delivers what it promises all that much. But I think often this this motivation, this belief in relativism, we're discipled really well to believe in it. And I really mean that. I think a lot of us have been discipled so well in relativism that we don't even realize we believe it. But I think it often comes out when we think about sharing our faith with others. So relativism causes us to look across at our agnostic coworker or our Buddhist neighbor or our Muslim colleague, and the second that we even consider sharing with them about Jesus, we quickly talk ourselves out of it because we think, oh, who am I to say that my truth is any truer than theirs? Who am I to consider that my belief system is any more valid than their belief system is, or, or even if deep down we do know and we do recognize that our belief system is that, we don't want to give off that vibe to them. We don't want it to make, we don't want it to seem like we believe that. We don't want to come across as arrogant or self-righteous or pushy. That is the power of relativism. We tend to think things like, well, this whole Jesus thing might be true for me, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily true for other people. For example, a recent study showed that while nearly all Christians agree that part of their faith means being a witness about others, or being a witness about Jesus, I'm sorry, while nearly all Christians agree that part of their faith is being a witness about Jesus, nearly half of them believe that it is wrong to share your beliefs with someone else in the hopes that that other person will one day believe it. So think about that for a second. Nearly half of people who claim to follow Jesus are saying that it is morally wrong to go and share their faith with someone else if the goal is to change the other person's mind. Not that they'd rather not do it because it's uncomfortable or awkward. They actually believe that it's incorrect to do. Many followers of Jesus now believe that we are doing people a favor by not talking to them about Jesus. We're sparing the other person an awkward conversation. We're we're saving them from the discomfort of having to consider a new belief system. A lot of people believe that we're doing what is right by remaining silent about it. So here's what I would argue is happening there. There is a conviction 
that we should share our faith with other people that is colliding with a worldview that we are good Western individualistic relativistic people. And the worldview is winning out evidently for at least half of Christians. The angst of sharing our faith with other people is overshadowing the conviction that we should be doing that. So here's what we need to figure out. How do we overcome the angst? How do we overcome that internal anxiety that many of us have towards sharing our faith with other people such that we can actually do it? How do we get past that feeling in our gut? Well, I think for starters, we need to realize that relativism is not unique to our day and age. Not by a long shot, in fact. The society where Christianity got its start in the pages of the New Testament was also a deeply relativistic society in most every way, probably in ways that are more explicit than ours today even is. The Roman Empire in the first century was a society built on relativism. And it really makes sense if you think about it, even if you just took, you know, a basic high school level history course. So Rome at this point had essentially conquered most of the ancient world as they knew it. And each of those conquered nations had their own gods, their own religions, their own spiritualities, their own systems of belief. So Rome had to figure out how to get all these different people from all of these different nations with different beliefs and different gods to exist alongside one another, at least somewhat peacefully. So relativism was really the only way forward. In fact, to make it clear that they would accommodate everyone's preferred gods in the empire, Rome actually set up a temple where they housed statues of various people's gods from all different places. Essentially, each god kind of had its own corner and its own room. They called it a pantheon. Pantheon literally means many gods. And you could go to this temple in Rome, no matter what God you believed in, and you could find a particular room with your particular God in it, and you could worship there. To each their own, literally, was the motto of the Roman Empire when it came to worshiping gods. So if you lived in the Roman Empire, Rome was cool with you worshiping any God that you wanted to worship, just as long as, and this is where it should start to sound very familiar to us in our society, just as long as you didn't claim that any of your gods were superior to anybody else's. As long as it was just your thing, and you didn't make claims of ultimate morality or ultimate truth or ultimate authority, you were good. That was the one thing you could not do because it was believed that if anybody claimed that, people could no longer live at peace with one another. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, there also was not a lot of peace behind the scenes. Now, here's the reason I'm telling you all of this. Sometimes I think we like to believe that we have progressed beyond some of the claims that the Bible makes. So we hear Jesus say things in the Bible like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Or we read seemingly dogmatic claims in the New Testament, like there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. And we go, okay, yeah, but they didn't realize back then how closed-minded that sounded. 
I mean, bless their 2,000-year-old hearts. They just didn't understand that there are a lot of different beliefs and there are a lot of different gods and there are a lot of different spiritualities. They said that back then because those were different times and they didn't know what we know now. But now we know that it's best to be a little bit more subjective and relativistic than all of that. The only problem with thinking that way is that that's not even a little bit true. To view history that way is actually to be very undereducated in history itself. Because the society in which Jesus and the other New Testament authors were making these exclusive claims about Jesus, these societies were every bit as much relativistic as ours today, if not more so. And the consequences in their day for making exclusive claims like Jesus is Lord were nearly always more severe than the consequences are for us today, as in martyrdom level severe. And yet here the early followers of Jesus were making claims that were every bit as offensive and every bit as seemingly narrow as they would be today, making those claims right in the midst of their relativistic culture. So I think the question we should all be asking as followers of Jesus today is what gave them that type of boldness? What gave them that type of audacity and courage? What would prompt them to make claims like that in their day despite the pressure not to and despite the consequences of doing so? What inspired them to go around day in and day out insisting that Jesus was Lord, saying to people constantly, not just this is true for me and you should consider making it true for you, but saying to people, this is true. At least best I can tell, here is the reason that they did that. Here was the motivation. And please brace yourself for the incredibly profound insight what I'm about to say is. The reason they said it was true is because it was true. This is why you guys pay me the big bucks right here. They said that because it was and is true. The early followers of Jesus spoke like Jesus was the only way and like their God was superior to all the other so-called gods because he is. That was their conviction, and that is how the universe is. And listen, that was their conviction from the earliest pages of the Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament, that the God of the Bible was the one true God of the universe. Genesis 1 opens with the line, the first words in the Bible were, in the beginning, God created. Now, sometimes we miss it today, but that was quite the claim to make when it was written. Most worldviews at the time claimed that there were many gods who were at war with one another, in conflict with one another, and as a result of that conflict, the world kind of accidentally sprung into being. But the Bible claims that in the beginning there was only one God and that that God created out of love. There is only one true God. The earliest confession of faith the Jewish people had, one that is still recited by Orthodox Jews today, was pulled straight from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It hits on this exact same theme. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, as in there is only one God. 
Psalm 96 sums this up beautifully when it says things like, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the nations are idols. In other words, they're not real, but the Lord God made the heavens. Jesus prefaces his instructions on mission to go and make disciples with the words, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the only one worth giving your life to. I am the only one with this sort of authority. The repeated, clear claim of the scriptures is that God is the one true God and all the others are a sham. All of this is why one theologian noted that the most basic doctrine in all the Bible is this claim, there is only one God. And if there is only one God, follow me, then people need to know about that. So we could give all sorts of reasons for why we live on mission, why we practice mission as followers of Jesus, all sorts of reasons for demonstrating and articulating the gospel to people in our world. We could say, for example, that it is to benefit those people that we tell about Jesus, which it is. We could say that it's because it shapes and forms us in the process, like we said last Sunday, and it does. We could say it's simply because Jesus told us to live on mission, which is true. But I would argue, and I think the scriptures would argue this as well, that the best possible reason for telling others about Jesus is that Jesus is the only true king. David Bosch, a leading missiologist, says it this way. He says, mission is more and different than just recruitment to our brand of religion. It is the alerting people to the universal reign of God through Christ. Excuse me, are you trying to convert me, your friend says? No, I'm trying to alert you to the universal reign of God through Christ. It's already true. I'm trying to help you for your good see that it is true. That is what we're doing when we live on mission. We are helping people discover that God is the only God worthy of our worship. He is the only one worthy of our time and our effort and our energy and our resources. He is the only one worth giving our lives to because he is the one who gave us life in the first place. The Lord, our God, is one. There is only one God. There is only one true king. Now, maybe you hear that and you start to think to yourself, okay, but isn't that kind of arrogant to think that? Isn't it dangerous to say that our belief system is the one true belief system and that others aren't true? Isn't that a little bit dangerous? Again, relativism has discipled us into being very uncomfortable with assertions like that. But as we've said here on Sundays, it's not arrogant to simply state that something is true. So if I said to you, uh, India Kincannon is the mayor of Knoxville, would you respond by going, wow, how arrogant of you to make such a statement? Like, what is the level of presumption to just go around declaring that she is the mayor of Knoxville? you wouldn't respond that way. You wouldn't tell me to have more humility because it's not arrogant to simply say that something is true. Some people will tell you that it's arrogant, but it's not. It's not arrogant to simply state that something is true. So G.K. Chesterton, we've used this quote before, he put it this way, sort of decrying and poking fun at the silliness of relativism. 
He says, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. He says, we are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. I like G.K. Chesterton because he's snarky. I don't know what that says about me, that that's what I like about him, but I think that's helpful. What he's saying is, hey, it's, it's not arrogant to simply say that something is true. It might be the most loving thing in the world to say that something is true. It, it's not arrogant to say that something is true. Now listen, you can say true things in an arrogant way, to be sure. Humanity's been doing that for as long as there's been time, right? Christians have been doing that. Non-Christians have been doing that. Plenty of people do that. You can say what is true in an arrogant way, but truth is not arrogant to state in and of itself. So listen, let's be sensitive to how we talk to people about Jesus. Let's be aware of our tone of voice and the words that we are using and how we go about it. Let's be humble and gentle in how we speak to them. Whenever possible, let's do it in ways that are culturally winsome and culturally appropriate for the context. Yes and amen to all of that. But let's not buy into the lie that we're doing what is noble by keeping our mouths shut. There is a world out there that needs to hear about the one true king. There is a world out there that needs to hear about how the world actually is and how the world actually one day will be. And it is the most loving thing possible to tell them that. And according to the pages of the Bible, telling them that news is precisely our job as followers of Jesus. Which brings us right back to the reason Paul already gave us for why we are sent out. Brings us right back to Romans chapter 10. There, Paul told us right there in the middle of the passage, and I quote, for, in other words, here's the reason for all of this. Here's the reason you're sent. Here's the reason it matters. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the exact same idea. The belief that we must be sent to proclaim and announce the gospel to the people around us, that belief is driven by the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. He is the one true king. He is the one true God. The way of Jesus is not just true for you. It's not just true for me. It's not just our truth. It is the truth. It's not just subjectively true. It's objectively true. And if it is objectively true, people need to hear about it. And so that's what we do in how we live and in what we say. We proclaim that Jesus is Lord. So just as we begin to wrap up here, and I wanna to talk to you in just a second about the practice guide, but before we do that, I just wanna ask you, is this how you think about the good news of Jesus? Do you think of the good news of Jesus not just as being true for you, but true, period? Because I will tell you, that makes all the difference in the world. 
when it comes to your readiness and your willingness to speak the gospel to others. It makes all the difference in the world when it comes to your willingness to fight through the angst and overcome it to tell people about Jesus. If the gospel is just subjectively true to you, if it's just one of many worldviews that happens to work out well for your season of life and your place in life and your background, if it's just true for you, you're not gonna be that motivated to tell other people about it. But if it is objectively true, if Jesus is the king of the universe and everybody needs to hear about that, if it's not just one good way of life, but the only lasting way of life, then that is something that we should do whatever it takes to tell other people about. So just this morning, I just invite you to consider no shame, no condemnation, do you understand that the gospel is true? Not just true for you, but true. And if so, who do we need to tell about that? So as we mentioned last Sunday, we put out a practice guide booklet to sort of accompany this teaching series. We actually have them this week. We meant to have them last week, and like I said, supply chain issues, all that stuff. Um, so we actually have them for you out in the lobby. If you want a physical copy, you can grab those. They're completely free. Maybe don't take one if you're not gonna use them just because they do cost money to make, but if you want to participate in this series with us, grab one on your way out. I think the hospitality team will have them. They'll be sitting on the tables as you head out. Um, but we have these practice guides. And in these practice guides, during each week of the series, we have one particular practice for you to work through related to the teaching from that week. So we want to end this series, not just hear things up here on Sundays, but actually do the work of putting them into practice, like Jesus said is important. So this week, there's a practice that we've just called addressing the angst, and it, it addresses a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about this morning. It's a brief worksheet where you can just kind of process through uh, on paper, try to pinpoint any angst that you might feel about speaking to others about Jesus, and then work through all of that with help from the scriptures. So it's all pretty self-explanatory. Feel free to go through it on your own. Feel free to go through it with your life group when you get together this week. Maybe do some of both. Whatever works for you. But this is a great way of actually dealing head on with whatever hesitancies you might have towards this idea of talking to people about Jesus. So that practice is in the guide, which you can get on your way out. It's also available digitally at citychurchknox.com. Either way, that's what we'll work through in the coming week. I'd love to pray for us as we wrap up. Father, we thank you that your son Jesus is the one true king. God, we thank you that you are the only God worth worshiping. You are the only real and true God. And God, our prayer is for the people in our world to come to see that more and more. God, that is the only thing that brings lasting peace. That is the only thing that ends the strife and the division and the infighting that is happening across our world and especially in our nation is if people come to discover what the one true way is and who the one true God is.
So God, uh, I want to just ask that by your spirit this morning, you would help break down whatever walls we may have put up towards this idea of speaking that reality into other people's lives. God, whatever hesitancies we might have, whatever fears rise up in our soul, whatever angst we have, I want to pray that you would overcome it with truth. God, maybe even this morning you just need to Help us look at our own lives and the lives of others that have been changed and radically transformed by the gospel to help see that this is not just a subjective belief system. This is not just sort of the way that we've chosen to go through life and there may be others out there that are decent too. God, this is the only true way of life that there is. This is the only worthwhile way of life that there is and you are the only God worthy of worship so God would you give us the ability to see that in ourselves and would you give us the boldness and the courage that is needed to speak that to others as we go through this series and we just kind of explore a lot of the different facets of it and how to do it well and um, and what you are and are not asking of us. God, I pray that first you would just bring a boldness, bring a courage, bring an audacity in our souls that maybe we haven't experienced before, maybe we experienced for a while and haven't felt within us for years. God, would you create that in us? And would you do it so that the world can hear about the one true king? We ask this in your name. Amen.